Amen. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi. I'm going to have a short series in the book of Malachi. Uh, I'm waiting until the fall to get back in Romans uh, when all the vacations are over and all of this. Uh, we'll be starting back September in Romans chapter 9 and we'll read, uh, move through the rest of the book. But for the summer months, I'm going to be in Malachi and maybe one of the other minor prophets. Well, this morning, we're in chapter 1 of Malachi, chapter 1 of Malachi, and I'd like for us to read this portion of God's Word together. So if you're able to stand, why don't you stand with me as I read this passage from God's Word. Malachi chapter 1, we'll read the whole chapter. The oracle, or the burden of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, They may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear or reverence, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar? But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised? When you offer blind animals to sacrifice in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those who are lame or sick... Is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of the Lord, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, he will show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name, to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. In every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what is a weirdness, what a weirdness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or, uh, or is lame, or sick, and this you bring as your offerings. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifice to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is the word of God. You may be seated. 
I heard the story about a church member who once scolded her pastor for preaching a sermon on the sins of Christians. And um, she said to her pastor, the sins of Christians are different than other people's sins. And the pastor replied, yes, they're worse. Why are the sins of Christians worse? Let's think about that just for a minute. Could it be because the sins of Christians, they not only break the Word of God, but they break God's heart? I think Malachi would agree that the sins of Christians are the worst sins of all. Let's think about the prophet Malachi just for a minute. His name means my messenger. And the prophet Malachi was God's messenger to his people Israel. He prophesied around 433 B.C. after the Babylonian captivity. A remnant of exiles had returned to the land of Judah under the leadership of Ezra, And Nehemiah, the temple and the city of Jerusalem and its walls had been rebuilt. The temple worship had been restored, but the priesthood and the people had fallen into spiritual apathy and indifference. They had a calloused, hard heart. And Malachi was given the difficult task of confronting the people with their sin. Well, see, Malachi had a burden. He had a burden. We read in verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The word oracle, it can be translated burden. His message was a burden to proclaim because the sin of Israel weighed heavy on his heart. In the first chapter of Malachi, he confronts the people with three sins in particular. The sin of doubting God's word or God's love, the sin of doubting God's love. Second, the sin of despising God's name. And then thirdly, the sin of defiling God's worship. Now these same sins are very much present in the church today. If we're honest with ourselves, we would say that these same sins are present in our church, in your life, and my life as well. And Malachi was burdened of the sins in his day. Are we really burdened? over the sins in our day? Does it burden you? Does it burden me that God's Word is despised and ridiculed like never before in our society? Does it burden you that over 480,000 abortions have taken place already this year in our country? Does it burden you that 62 million abortions have taken place in the United States since the Supreme Court Ruled in Roe versus Wade? Does it burden you that all the candidates who want to be the next president of the United States enthusiastically support the killing of unborn babies? Does it burden you that the God-ordained institution of marriage has become something God never intended it to be? But I believe what should burden us even more than anything else is our sin. Our sin. Well, see, it's so easy to point at other people, other churches, other nations. But what should burden us more than anything else is our sin, the sin of those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. You know, the book of Malachi is really a conversation, and I encourage you to just read through the book of Malachi because it's just that. It's a conversation between Israel and God. It's a dialogue 
between Israel and God. In this dialogue, God charges Israel with three sins. And Israel responds to God by claiming ignorance on each charge. And these same sins are very much present in our lives today. Let's look at the first sin, the sin of doubting God's love. The sin of doubting God's love. God declares in verse 2, I have loved you. I mean, God could not be any clearer than that. God begins with a message of love, that He has always loved His people. That's always been God's message in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, the tense of the verb here, I have loved you, have loved, it stresses the fact that God has always loved Israel and always will love her. Always will. In the book of Jeremiah, God says to Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Now, how long is everlasting? It's everlasting. It's forever and ever and ever. So God's love for His people never ends. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. And that means the very essence of God is love. The essence of His character is love. The essence of who He is is love. Love defines God. That's who He is. He's a God of love. And you know, if we could ever just grasp that one truth, that God loves us, what a difference it would make. We'd never be the same. Years ago, a Christian friend who was much older than me and really became one of my mentors when I was in my early ministry, he asked me, he said, Norman, do you believe that there is nothing you can do to cause God to love you anymore? And as I was thinking about that, he asked the second question. Is there anything you can do that would cause God to love you any less? And, you know, at that time I said, no, I don't believe there is. And, of course, that's absolutely true. Do you believe that? Do you believe that, that God loves you and nothing in the world can ever change that? You know, the little song that we, 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 saw, we sang when we were children really rings that truth. Jesus loves me when I'm good. When I do the things I should, Jesus loves me when I'm bad, though it makes him very sad. And, of course, we know that sin grieves God's heart. No question about it. But it never changes his love for us. He loves us with an unconditional love. He puts no limits on his love. So God says to Israel here in Malachi, I love you. But I want you to notice Israel's response here. They say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? They were doubting God's love. You know, God had poured out His love upon that nation over and over again, yet they were callous, they were hard-hearted, they were indifferent, they were insensitive to God's love. Well, God answers them by reminding them that He loved them from the very beginning of their nation. And that's what he's talking about in verses 2 and 3 when he says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, what is God saying? I believe he's saying this. It is Jacob, and remember his name was changed to Israel. 
It is Jacob. It is Israel whom I have loved and chosen, not Esau. Now, when you think about this statement is really remarkable, really. Because in many ways, Esau was more likable than Jacob. Just, just read those passages in, in the book of Genesis. In many ways, Esau was a whole lot more likable than Jacob. Esau was the kind of guy you wanted to hang, around, hang out with. I mean, he was an outdoorsman. He was a hunter, fisherman. He was a man's man. He was outgoing and fun. Jacob was a mama's boy. He, he wanted to hang around the kitchen. He wanted to, to cook. He wanted to stay around at the house with mama. Also, Jacob was a trickster. He was a deceiver. He was a liar who cheated Esau out of his blessing and out of his birthright. Yes, Jacob um, had a lot of character flaws. Yet God cast his love on Jacob and his descendants. Why? Because God chose to. That's the only explanation for it. Someone uh, once asked Dr. Arno Gabelin, a renowned Jewish Bible teacher of the last century. They asked Dr. Gabelin, he said, you know, they said, I have a problem where it says that God hated Esau. So said, Dr. Gabelin, I have a problem with that. Dr. Gabelin replied, I have a greater problem where it says God loved Jacob. You know, it's really amazing that God could love any of us. Because if we got what we deserved, you know, we would all be in hell today. It's amazing that God could love any of us. Now, when it says that God loved Jacob and hated Esau, it's a figure of speech, of course. And we need to understand that. Hyperbole. And God is simply saying that his love for Jacob was so great in comparison that it seemed like he hated Esau. So he didn't hate Esau like we normally refer to hatred. Jesus used the same figure of speech when he said in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus saying we're to literally hate our brothers and sisters, our mother, our father, our family, ourselves? No, he's not saying that at all. That would go against everything else that we know in Scripture. Instead, Jesus is saying that our love for him is to be above all others. It's to be supreme in every way. So when God says, I, I love Jacob but hated Esau, he is saying that his love for Jacob was supreme. It was supreme. You know, we know that God chose Jacob to be the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. God chose Israel to be his covenant people through whom the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come. It was a special love relationship that no other nation had. God didn't choose Israel because of anything outstanding and good and special about them. In fact, this is what the Lord says to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. This is what the Lord says. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. 
for you were fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord chose you and loves you. Well, see, the entire history of Israel is a love story. That's what it is. It's a love story of God's love for them. And yet here, they are doubting God's love. They're doubting God's love. How have you loved us? They were completely oblivious to God's love for them. Now, it's easy for us to point fingers, isn't it, and say, you know, how in the world can this nation that God was so gracious to and all of this, did all this for them, and how they could doubt God's love for them. Well, I think a better question for us to ask is simply this. How can we, as followers of Jesus, doubt God's love after all He has done for us? Yes, we often do. We often do. When trouble comes our way, you know, it can be a, just a simple thing like the car breaks down or, or something big like a loved one dies or we lose our job, get sick. We say, God, why did you let this happen to me now? Now, we might not say it in words, but we think it, don't you love us? Don't you love me? Somehow, we got the belief, the mistaken belief, that troubles are a sign of God's displeasure. But the Bible says troubles and trials and adversity is not a sign of God's displeasure. In fact, it can be a part of God's loving discipline to strengthen us spiritually and to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. Like the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 6, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves. I love the, the words and the meaning of that, that old hymn, Every joy or trial falleth from above. Now, notice not just the joys of life, but the trials of life. Falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of love. We can trust Him fully, all for us to do. Those who trust Him wholly, find Him wholly true. See, God has purposes that we just don't understand. Even the troubles of life are for our good. You know, we need to adopt a Romans 8.28 mentality that says that all things work together for good, that lo- those who love God. Realizing even when the troubles of life come our way, they're designed to make us more like Jesus, to strengthen us spiritually. When we're tempted to doubt God's love, really all we need to do is look back at the cross. That answers all the questions because at the cross, Jesus says, this is how much I loved you. God sent His Son to die on the cross to suffer the pain and the penalty for our sin to pay for the guilt of our sin. That's how much He loves us. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? But there's a second sin that Malachi speaks of, and that's the sin of despising God's name. The sin of despising God's name. Just look at verse 6 again with me. A son honors his father and a servant his master, If then I am a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priest, who despise my name. You know, it's a natural thing for a son to honor his father. You expect that out of a son. 
But here Israel is not honoring their father. God was Israel's father, and he is saying to them, Why don't you honor me? Why don't you respect me as your father? Why why do you despise my name? Again, listen to their response. In verse 6, How have we despised your name? Again, their heart is so callous and indifferent and insensitive that they don't even realize their disrespect. But how about us? Aren't we guilty too? As believers in Christ, God is our Father. Do we, do we honor Him? You know, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, at that very moment, we were born into God's family. And we became God's children. God is our Father. Therefore, we are to honor God in everything we do. The question is, are we honoring Him? You know, it's so easy for us to become so familiar with spiritual things that we just take God for granted. Are we living a life that brings honor to God? Also, God was Israel's master and Lord. And he is saying to them, why don't you obey me as your Lord? Well, as believers, Jesus is our master and Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you're no longer your own. You've been bought with a price, so they're glorified God in your body. Jesus is our Lord. The question is, are we surrendered to him? And does our life show it? The way we live, the way we talk, the way we think, the way we conduct our lives. The question is, who sits on the throne of our life? See, it's either Jesus or self. It's either Jesus or self. And if Jesus is not the Lord of your life, then you're despising his name. The word despise here means to consider someone as worthless. In other words, if we're not allowing Jesus to take control of our life, to call us shots, to be the boss, to make the decisions. We're saying that he's not worthy to run our lives. And by that, we're despising his name. Now again, notice Israel's response in verse 6. But you say, how have we despised your name? How have we despised your name? Well, that brings us to the third sin, the sin of defiling God's worship. Well, see, the people said, how have we despised your name? God answers in verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Now, in Old Testament days, as you well know, the children of Israel worshiped God by bringing animals to be sacrificed by the priest. That was God's way. And the Bible was very clear about the sacrifices that the people were to bring to God. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 21, it says, But if there is a defect in it, that is the animals that you bring for sacrifice, if it is lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. And so God is saying, you must bring your best to me for a sacrifice. You must offer your very best to me. But what were they doing? What were they doing? Look at verse 8. They were offering blind animals. They were offering the lame and the sick. And God says in verse 8, 
Is that not evil? See, when it was time to bring a sacrifice to the temple, what the people were doing is something like this. They would look among their flock. Most were, you know, farmers, and they raised livestock, and they would look among their flock, and they would see a blind goat, and they would say, you know, what good is a blind goat to me? I believe I'll just take it to this temple and to sacrifice it. Or they would see a lame lamb in their flock, and they would say, that lame lamb isn't going to do me any good. I'm going to take it to the temple, and I will sacrifice it to the Lord. Or they would, say a sick, they would see a sick cow, and they say, you know, I really don't believe that cow's going to make it. That cow's going to die in a few days. I'll, I'll just take it to the temple and offer it as a sacrifice. So the people were bringing their blind goats and lambs and sick cows to offer to God. What they were doing, they were giving their leftovers to God. What they really didn't want. I really like what God says in verse 8. He says, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? What he is saying is, you know, you give a gift that like that, a shoddy gift like that to your governor, see where that will get you. And of course, in this day, it was the Persian governor because the captivity was still going on even though a remnant had come back to the land of Judah. Just offer that to your governor and see how far that will get you. And again, we stand back and we say how awful, how terrible, but aren't we guilty too? Do we give God our best? Do we give God the best of our time? Oh, I'll go to church if it's convenient. Or, you know, I'll serve if it's convenient for me to do so. I'll do it. Or I'll give if it's convenient if it's convenient. I like to call that convenient Christianity. Do we give God the best of our talents? See, God has gifted every one of us in special ways. Spiritual gifts and talents that he wants us to use, these gifts and talents for his glory, for his service. And the question is, are we doing that? Are we using our gifts and talents to serve him? Are we doing our part in the, in the body of Christ? Soon the nominating committee might be asked you to serve in a certain way. Are you willing to do your part? Do we give Jesus the best of our treasure? You know, this is the way a lot of Christians give. They buy all the food they want. They buy all the clothes they want. They buy all the gadgets they want. They buy all the cars they want. And if there's anything left over, they'll give it to God. Pastor Warren Wiersbe, he writes this in his little commentary. He says, What does this say to professing Christians today who spend hundreds of dollars annually, perhaps thousands, on gifts for themselves, their family, and their friends, but just throw in a few bucks when the offering plate is passed? God says, that's nothing but defiled bread on my altar. That's what God calls it, defiled bread on my altar. God doesn't want your leftovers. He doesn't want my leftovers. He wants our best. See, is God pleased with our worship? That's the whole deal. In fact, God was so displeased with Israel's worship that he says this in verse 10. Listen to verse 10. He says, Oh, that there were among you 
one who will shut the doors. He's talking about shutting the doors of the temple, just closing down the worship, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. God is saying, I'm so tired of this vain worship. I just wish someone would just close the door of the temple. Just shut it down. Now, these are strong words. But I believe God is saying the same thing to some churches today. I'm so tired of your empty worship. I'm so tired of you just going through the the ritual and the routine of, of worship, and it means nothing really to you. I just wish somebody would just shut the church down because I don't accept that kind of worship. I'll say God wants Christ-honoring worship. Say worship is not about us. Worship is not about what we want. It's not about our preferences, what we like, the kind of music we like, the kind of the kind of singing we like. It's not about us. It's all about Christ. It's about bringing him glory and honor. So when we sing, we should bring Jesus honor and praise. When we teach that Sunday school class or a one or whatever it might be, it should bring Jesus honor. When we give our tithes and offerings, it should bring honor to Jesus Christ. When we serve, it should be about bringing honor and glory to Jesus Christ. See, if it's not about Jesus, it's not true worship. You know, God also wants our worship to be with joy. <laughs> joy, not, not because we have to, but because we get to. You know, the children of Israel had come to the point that their worship was boring. He calls it wearisome in verse 13. What a wearisome thing this is. And he says, you snorted it, says the Lord of hosts. And you know, that's, those are sad words. They came to the temple to worship, and they just snorted at it. They, they stuck their nose up in the air and said, what a, what a bore, what a waste of time. God says, do you think I'm going to accept that kind of worship? You know, every now and then I hear people say things like, um, you know, I, I don't like that church because it's boring or I don't like coming to church because it's boring. You know, that tells me a lot about the person who made that statement. What they're really saying is, God's boring. What they're really saying is, God's word's boring. Singing praises to God is boring. And you heard Kent say it already. The cure for boring worship is falling in love with Jesus. Loving Him supremely. Loving Him and His Word and falling in love with Him. So if you fall in love with Jesus and His Word, worship will be exciting and fresh all the time. J. Vernon McGee, he writes this, Today there are people who will sit on bleachers for three hours out in the hot sun and watch a baseball game. There are folks who will sit out in the cold to watch a football game. And there are those who will sit for two hours watching a movie. And he says, my friend, why are you weary when your preacher preaches for 45 minutes? And I love what John Piper says. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. 
You know, when I hear people say, you know, I don't like that church, I'm not getting fed. I hear that all the time sometimes, not from you, but from other places. And again, that tells me a lot about the people too. It tells me maybe they're not spending enough time personally feeding on God's Word because there's no way in the world the church can give you all the spiritual nourishment that you need for a week. You know, it's like saying, you know, you can get a buy with just one meal a day and you'll be okay. No, we need the constant daily diet of the Word of God. There was a preacher in Saluda who was known for praying a long time. In fact, he would he would pray sometimes 20 minutes. And I remember hearing somebody say, you know, he's probably not spending enough time praying at home that he feels like he's got to pray that long in church. And there was probably a lot of truth in it, you know. You know, but the day is coming. And I love what Malachi does. He, he looks at the present situation, but then he, he looks to the future. And he says, the day is coming when people from all over the world will worship God. In sincerity, he says that in verse 11, if you look there with me, for from the rising of the sun, even to the going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Skip down to verse 14. First part of the verse, it says, For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. In other words, the day is coming that all the people will bow down and worship God in sincerity. And then I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that is Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, that's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns to this earth. But until then, we're to worship in a way that brings God glory. Will you make that commitment this morning to be a true worshiper? To be a true worshiper? To truly worship God in spirit and truth the way He wants to be worshipped? And will you make a commitment today to avoid these, these sins that are very prevalent in the life of the church, the life of Christians, the sin of doubting His love, the sin of despising His name, and the sin of defiling His worship. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank You so much for Your Word today. We thank